David Niles here alongside Adam Minahan from the Catholic Man Show. And we have a big announcement for all the fathers out there. So if you are a dad or if you have a dad, listen up. I know that there's a lot of Catholic dads out there that listen to Catholic Radio, and we partnered with a bunch of Catholic affiliates, including Catholic Answers, to bring the ultimate Catholic Man Show Father's Day giveaway. That's right. We have a brand new Yeti cooler that we're giving away that's packed full of Catholic stuff. So if you want information on how to win it, go to thecatholicmanshow.com slash giveaway. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys. Hey, Dennis. Hey, Chris. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Jesse. How are your respective uh, states and/or locations? Uh, fine. Opening <laughs> slowly, slowly opening. Yeah, they are getting, getting opening better again. every day. Yeah, I, it is getting better every day. I think there's a little more access for people now these days. So, what better way to serve the people? Uh, then by teaching them more about the liturgy through, uh, we're talking about a document today, Liturgium Authenticum. Is that correct? Correct. That is correct. Now, we're going to get the whole thing done today. Is that what you're saying? No, this is actually a pretty long document, and it's got some interesting theology in it. It's it's about proper rules for translations. But you'd oh, be surprised <laughs> how much interesting stuff is in there that's not just about translations. Now, Chris is usually the king of backstory, but I'll do a little backstory here. Okay, so you can correct me, Chris. So in is it 1969 and or 1970, the new missile comes out, right? So that's the book the priest uses to say mass, and we all use to say mass. So the first edition comes out, and it's translated. And then they have to change it every so often. They add new saints, and they make editions that you know change. So the second edition was put out in Latin, and some parts of the world actually translated it and used it. The English-speaking people never actually got the translation finished for a whole variety of reasons. It was sort of hijacked by politics and stuff, and it got rejected by Rome uh, for various reasons, inclusive language, I think, and some others. So they were trying to get it translated, uh, which we never saw. People in the pews never actually saw the second edition. And then in, when they, John Paul II decided for the year 2000 he was going to put out the new edition, the third edition of the missile, and they said, you know what? Don't bother translating the second edition because there's going to be a new one pretty soon. And the uh, translations needed to be done from the Latin. And they changed the rules, so to speak, or they put out the rules for how will you translate this Latin edition of the missile. So it's actually not a new translation of an old missile. It's a new translation. It's the first translation of a new edition of a missile. Right. So the second, so it wasn't a revision. The second edition got lost Never in translation. Made it. <laughs> got lost in its lack of translation. Oh, got it. Although, yeah. you know, because everybody has their preferred uh, liturgical period these days, there are people claiming that the second edition was better, and if we just had that, everything would be fine, and the mm-hmm. third edition ruined it. You can find that kind of in the Pray Tell blog uh, circles very, quite often. And I think Lit Press actually put out a book by someone who made the claim that the second edition translation was the way we, we should have gone, and we missed the opportunity. So... You know, if you can have extraordinary form, why not have the second edition of the missile, right? There's all kinds of claims you can make. But what's interesting about this, and if anybody, you know, this is 2001, it came out, and it took a while to get it done. 
So do you know what year, Chris, the new missile as we use it now actually showed up? When were you doing Mystical Body, Mystical Voice? That was yeah, like it, it was eight uh, years ago. Uh, more, Dennis. Uh, I think yeah, uh, 2011 ago. was when okay. Advent on 2011 was the first Sunday we used the the new the third edition in its translation. Okay, right. So if someone is 18, 19, we have a lot of college student listeners like my niece's friend, Patrick. Hi again, Patrick. Um, oh, you may I, not. Can I give a shout out to? Yeah. To, no. uh, okay, never mind. I'll <laughs> oh, go ahead, Chris. So, I want to know. So uh, when some of the college uh, students were coming home a few months ago, I met a Wyoming Catholic college student named Jacob Zepp, who's traveling from a lander at Wyoming Catholic College. Uh, wow. to uh, to his home in Appleton and uh, professed to be a, a huge liturgy fan listener. So shout out to Jacob. In, we uh, won't Appleton. know if that's true until he's a Patreon supporter, which you can go to patreon.com slash liturgy. He's a college student. Yeah. Well, did oh. he tell you he was a liturgy guy's supporter before or after he borrowed? He didn't say supporter. He said uh, a listener. Fan. Was, oh, fan. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. Anyway, well, but thanks, yes, Jacob college Zepp. students. Yeah. So, yeah, we have a lot of college student listeners, which is amazing. So thank you to, uh, to all of them. So they may not remember, you know, this time, 2001's ancient history for someone who's 20 years old. But, you know, until, you know, until recently, we used the first edition of the missile, uh, which was from 1970. So, you know, give it a little while there. And so when the third edition comes out and John Paul says this is the gift for the new millennium, it has to be translated. And so they put out the fifth instruction for the right implementation of the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy. Of the Second Vatican Council. Okay. So this is a document comes from Rome from the Congregation for Divine Worship and Discipline of the Sacraments. It says, here's your guidelines for translating. And it's remarkably complicated. Think hang of all hang the on, Dennis. Ways hang you on. could do that. Can what we do you mean, hang on? Well, so this is the fifth one. Should we put Jesse on the spot and see if he can name Ooh. the uh, the one, previous, two, three, and four? The one, two, three, and four. We've done about? podcasts. We've Jesse. On all of them. We've done podcasts on the first four post conciliar instructions. Okay, great. So what? So what's number one? <laughs> hey, now, Jesse, I'll say at the beginning, I hope I can remember him too. So don't feel bad if you don't care. I hope I can remember him. <laughs> I know the fourth one, right? Okay. The, yeah. Okay. What was the fourth one? There was that Veritatis Legitimate. That's Veritatis Legitimate. That's the one on enculturation. Yeah. And that was uh, 90, uh, 99, right? I think so. No, yep. 94. 94. January 94. Okay. Uh, the first one was... Inter, inter-ecumenici. Inter-ecumenici. Yeah. Among I can the, see Jesse looking them up. Yeah, on yeah. No, no. Liturgice mm-hmm. Instaurationes. Oh, yeah. that's, the third, on that that's the third one. So, right, the, I thought Trace Apinganos was the third uh, one. Nailed <laughs> it. Three years hence. Yeah, Trace Apinganos was the second post-conciliar instruction. Then Liturgice Instaurationes. Then Varietatis Legitime. And then, as Dennis said, the fifth one here, Liturgium Authenticum. Okay. And Chris, by the way, is an expert on all of this because he co-wrote or mostly wrote a book called Mystical Body, Mystical Voice. Mm. Correct, Chris? Yeah. It's yeah. all about the meaning of words. We have to have to hold that last chord again. Go ahead, Jesse. No, you guys do it. I was just making a joke and I always mess oh. it up. So you guys do it. Yeah. Yeah. So Father Martis and I, Dennis, you were in on some of these and Father mm-hmm. Randy Stice, who works for the USCCB now, did some of these and Father John Paul Erickson and Greg Strickland did some of these. We probably talked to, I don't remember if they added up to certainly more than 10,000 
people about the the uh, imminent uh, use of the the new translation. And I'll tell you, on the front end of that, I was all sorts of nervous. This is a potentially very volatile sort of uh, topic to go out and talk to priests and laity about. And I will say that uh, my experience doing this was awesome. Mm. But the the only the only anger. <laughs> If there was anger, it was that people were so upset that they'd never heard any of this stuff before. I've been, we've, do you remember this, Dennis? We, we run into people say, I've been a Catholic for 75 years, and I've never heard any of this uh, liturgical theology that uh, that you're peddling that, here. That's so, how I felt after starting my my job at the, the LI. I, I just was angry that nobody told me this stuff before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to take it out on me all the time. That's why I had to move to Kansas. But here I am. <laughs> That's why I left? am. Oh, yep. no, you had been nicer is. to me, Jesse. Yep. So well, I have your plant. So jokes on you. Think, think about it this way. The instruction on how to implement Vatican II, right? At the time, people were saying, Oh, retranslating. It sounds more traditional. Oh no, it's the traditional people turning back the clock. It's not where they're talking about. This is, the continuing implementation to make deeper and more fertile the application and acceptance of the Second Vatican Council. And uh, that's what it's about. And you can find this on the Vatican webpage. It's very easy to, to find these things. And it's particularly for the Roman liturgy, right? This is not didn't apply to the Ukrainians and Greeks and Russians. Yeah, you know, on that point, Dennis, I remember hearing this line back 10 years ago when we were doing these conversations. Um it was uh, I don't remember which bishop said that, but he was he was a bishop at the council and he had this uh, Anglican friend who after. Th- so this is based on uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium number 36, where it talks about maintaining the Latin yet uh, providing vernacular translations. And this uh, Anglican says to him, you Catholics think you, you've just solved all of your language problems. Well, let me tell you, they're just beginning <laughs> because. <laughs> You know, uh, in some ways, uh, this was new territory for us. Uh, I mean, you know, initially, the 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 language of the liturgy in Rome was in Greek for a couple of centuries. I, th- I think in North Africa it was always Latin, but in Rome, uh, the language of the Roman Rite was in Greek, and then which is why the Curie is still Greek, right? What yeah, else? yeah. Uh, and then it wasn't. Uh, it was about the time that Saint Jerome. Do you remember his states? probably 5th century, maybe he's 4th century, translated the uh, um, the Greek New Testament into, uh, Latin. into Latin, the, the Vulgate. Vulgate. Yeah. It's about that same time that the, the Greek language of the Roman Rite was itself translated into Latin. Uh, now, it wasn't man on the street uh, Latin. It was it was a very high level of Latin. But I guess the point in all this is that, you know, the, the vernacular had been around for the first five or six or eight or ten centuries, uh, but then kind of um, uh, stayed locked for about the, you know, the next eight or nine centuries. And so, but for all intents and purposes, the business of translating liturgical texts into vernacular was, from our point of view, something that was uh, new with Liturgium Authenticum. What did Father Martis always used to say, Chris? You know, oh, that, that, yeah. French, that French line. Tra- no. I, yeah. All right. I don't, what was it? Uh, or he, he had an Italian version, too. The, they both meant something like the translator is a traitor. Yeah. Is the the translator is to, is to betray. Yeah. yeah. And in, in a way you are because you're, you're a traitor to the original language. You can never really get that word across. Like try to translate the word funky into another language and bring all the nuances of what that that means it would just be very difficult 
So biblical words that have all these histories and meanings and nuances, very difficult to, to do. The bottom line in all this is God communicates himself to us as a word, right? His self-knowledge is expressed as Christ the word. And then we have to hear that, know that, understand that, and return that to the Father as a word. And I, I'll never forget many things. You know, I learned at the Liturgical Institute, but I remember um, Andrew Wadsworth came and gave a lecture. He was the head of the uh, International Commission on English and Liturgy at the time, or the executive secretary, I guess. And he said, you're putting the words of the bride on your lips, and you better have the words <laughs> that the bride would say. Right? If you're speaking as the bride of Christ, you know, saying, yes, I want to be joined to the persons of the Trinity, you want to say the right things you know, to your groom. And so word choice, very, uh, very important stuff. <laughs> we, we used to say in our presentations that uh, you know, if you were a kid, did your parents ever say, don't talk, to your, don't talk to me like that or don't talk to your mother like that? It, you know, just along those same lines, Dennis, you know, there's a certain way to talk to God. You don't just talk to – in your private prayers – you talk to God however you want, uh, but when you're speaking as the 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 bride to the bridegroom, there's a certain mm-hmm. way that you talk to God. Right, and in some sense, it's the bride's voice, you know, talking to himself. Right, so it's the voice of Christ, the mystical body, speaking to the Father. But on the other hand, we're trying to unite ourselves to the bride, uh, to the groom, which is Christ. And so, boy, love love songs, love texts different than everyday speech. Who are the who are the people writing this document, by the way? Are, who are the people who are kind of in charge of mm. deciding these things? Well, it's a mystery. It's always a mystery. The people who write these kinds of things are always supposed to be anonymous. I've heard some rumors about who it may have been, which I'm not going to say because I don't know for sure. But the idea is it's never supposed to look like one person's personal opinion. So they get a group of experts together and they come up with uh, something like this and then present it as the church's request. But it obviously would be, a, you know, someone who understands languages very well, understands Latin very well. In many ways, it almost sounds like someone who understands English very well. I remember them talking about the importance of English because many people would use the English version as a touchstone for the later translations in other languages. So my guess it was an, an English speaker was highly involved, although I don't, I don't know for sure. You know, what are they talking about here? How does God communicate himself to us? How do we communicate ourselves back to God? So this notion when liturgy is authentic, it's related to the author of those words and uh, that it could be a source of grace. That's what it says in, you know, paragraph one. And um, paragraph two speaks about the great work of renewal of the council through the translation of the Roman rite, uh, bringing that renewal to the sacred liturgies. So... As I recall, when we were doing this, most people were talking about the politics of gendered language and right versus left and Vatican versus people and them versus us. And how dare you make us use a word we've never heard before. And nobody was, except for you, Chris and Father Martis, uh, nobody was really saying, how do we make the words best uh, reveal sacramentally what God wants us to know? And what God wants us to say back to them. Plus, they can't consubstantiate those claims. <laughs> well, there's one of the words, consubstantial with the Father. Now, we used to say one in being with the Father, I think, in the previous uh, translation. And consubstantial sounded awfully technical and theological, and some people were complaining about that. One of the interesting things was the British had been using the word consubstantial for several decades. And it's not English, American English, but what they wanted was one English language missile across all the English speaking countries. So they'd be unified in their prayer. And so the Americans were like, Oh, well, we're going to be cultural imperialists and make you Brits 
say it the way we Americans, we Yanks, you know, want it. And uh, when I first learned, okay, well, we're actually trying not to overwhelm other English speaking cultures and we're actually coming to some kind of concord with them. It sort of took the wind out of the sails of some angry people about that word. There's so many things people don't know. Yeah, but I I think you hit upon something there, Dennis, that there's a variety of ways that uh, you can approach translation or certainly a a number of ways that this particular translation was viewed, a number of lenses, you know, to look at. And one of these was political. Um, But, you know, in the end of the day, that didn't help anybody pray any better. Uh, You could look at it according to uh, laws and legislation and rubrics. You can look at it according to uh, history, uh, a variety of, of ways. But you know, as you said, the, the, the most helpful, the most fruitful way is to say, how does this translation sacramentalize uh, the divine mystery, uh, the meaning, the person of Christ? That's the, the true litmus of, uh, of the translation. How well does it communicate the work of, uh, of God to the people in such a way that they can actively participate in that work and become divinized unto the, unto the glory of God? I mean, that's, that's the measure of the translation right there. How does that happen, though? I mean, is this – are these inspired, these liturgical texts? Is, is, do we go so far as to say that? The Latin texts or the translations? The translations. Well, you hope the Holy Spirit was helping out there. I know there was a process where they would actually have the literal – slavishly literal translation before them, and then they would try to use poetic renderings. They would look at other translations of other periods in history. They even looked at some of the Anglican translations, because many of those are quite beautifully done, and then tried to come up with a translation that was considered best. You know, I think, divinely inspired or not, um, it's it's like the church has been working on this um, this way of praying for, for centuries, even millennia, right? So, you know, like when you're writing a, a paper or a press release or, or, or a caption for the podcast, whatever it is, you know, what's the right word? How do I want to say that? No, 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 that doesn't quite capture it. You know, you delete this, you move that, you move this phrase, you know, you, you, know, you spend five, 10 minutes trying to say that. Well, the church has been working for centuries on how to find the right way to say uh, what she wants to say to God. And so divinely inspired or not, she's been at this business for a very long time. And that's one of the things that uh, I think Liturgiam Authenticam is trying to capture is to respect the traditional language of, you know, our mother church who knows how to talk to God. And how can we put that language on the lips of contemporary non-Latin speaking Catholics is the question. You ever hear anybody say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women, yes. is the fruit of your womb. Yeah. And like nobody says thou, really, but when someone does, when we don't say blessed art thou among women, it sounds kind of odd, right? So it's archaic, but it's nonetheless still in living practice. And all of a sudden you have these uh, choices that are made. You know, paragraph three of the document itself um, it talks about great prudence in preparing liturgical books. And it says they should be marked by sound doctrine, obviously, right? Exact wording, free from ideological influence, and endowed with qualities by which the sacred mysteries of salvation and the indefectible faith of the church, that's the faith of the church, which has no defects, are uh, efficaciously transmitted by means of human language to prayer and then worthy uh, offering to God. So ideological influence. Could you imagine going to mass and like, you know, the translator was either a 
Democrat or a Republican and they, they stick in a little word that like pushes, you know, one political party, you'd be totally distracted and angry and you'd be wondering why are these words doing this instead of praying, right? So the idea is how do you let these words become so right and so beautiful and so full of exa um, exact wording and proper doctrine that you can just pray and the words you're saying are true. So you don't want to make liturgy great again, Dennis? I want liturgy to be great again in the proper sense. <laughs> we talked about Milga, Milga hats a while ago, MLGA. Make liturgy great again. Um, and so make, document wait, make a liturgy great again? Or there's no A? Not Malga, just Mulga. Mulga. We'd have to come up with uh, something again. Liturgy is always great, right? So we'd have to say something more like make our sacramentalization of the perfect liturgy more perfect. Uh, as well. yeah. I'll yeah. get right on that. Yeah. You know, but, but I, again, I think that that term sacramentalization is the key to all of this. You, you remember uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium number seven, it goes something like uh, in the, uh, the liturgy is considered as a exercise of the priestly office yeah, of Jesus Christ. Christ. Yeah. Uh, in the liturgy, the sanctification of the man is signified by signs perceptible mm -hmm. to the senses. It corresponds with each of these signs in the liturgy is performed by the whole mystical body of Christ head members. Now wow. apply, apply that. To I, sorry. I just have to say, Chris, that's like the typical Chris, like, Oh, what does that say? Apply this. Stop interrupting Jesse. <laughs> Supply this to, to language. All right. So in the liturgy, the liturgy is considered as a, as an exercise of the logos of the word, the word who became flesh, the word who was sacrificed upon the cross. That's unseen reality. Uh, in the liturgy, this logos is made audible by signs perceptible to ears. That is to say, by words, by language, and uh, corresponds in such a way that our sanctification takes place through these same words. See, and so that's what this is about. How do you find that that? authentic language that sacramentalizes most beautifully, clearly, resoundingly the logos of the Trinity, the logos on the cross to human ears in such a way that we can hear it and reply to it. And in fact, even become, we've heard this word before uh, by, by Pope Benedict, we become logicized. We start to sound like that logos. When you speak authentic words of the liturgy, you become like the logos, like the word. You start to reverb orate with Ooh, him cool. and, and echo with him. So this is what's at stake here. If you get the language wrong, then the language becomes dull, incorrect, uninspiring, all of these things, you don't get transformed. God doesn't get glorified. And so I mean, in some ways, I mean, think about the baptismal rite. Uh, I mean, you can you could do that beautifully or you could do that poorly. You can uh, you can use dirty water. You can omit, you know, the, the vesting. You can change the words, things like that. Uh, the, the, the same type of thing is going on with language. You can use language that that dulls the mystery and doesn't let us become transformed by it. So that's that's what Liturgium Authenticum is about. Now, you guys have wives, right? 
Uh, did before the podcast. Okay. <laughs> Same here. Now, have you ever said something? I did before COVID. I just carelessly say. said something and your wife responded with extreme annoyance when you didn't mean to be annoying. Mm, like the way yeah. you phrased it or you asked a question like, why didn't this happen? Like, what do you mean? Why didn't this happen? I've been busy all day taking care of the, you know, stuff like that. Right. A subtle expression. Jesse's putting a look like, uh, do I do well, say I anything? Mean, uh, <laughs> Yeah, the answer is yes, for sure. But I'm trying to think of an example. Yeah. Yeah. But the word choice or the inflection or whatever can can bring out a totally unexpected response in somebody. And so Sarkozy Mathenda comes all about how we do that. So in paragraph four, they talk about that the tradition received from the uh, fathers and the apostles. Very interesting stuff, right? Translating the Missal in the 21st century. They go back to the tradition received from the fathers. That's the early centuries of the church. And then back to the apostles. In other words, we're handing this on from generation uh, to generation. And it's supposed to maintain the integrity and unity of the Roman rite. Very interesting thing, right? If you split up into all these different regional countries and they have different slang and they bring all that into the, into the translation, then you're splitting the Roman rite into these different groups. And so although the Roman rite can take in lots of new cultural adaptations and enculturations, they're always very eager that the unity of the Roman rite is um, being preserved. And that's why they wanted all the English-speaking countries to use the same missile. Yeah. Uh, sorry to do this again. Go back to Sacrosanctum Concilium One. This sacred council has four aims in view. One of them is to adapt where necessary uh, to cultures and groups, but the other is to strengthen the call into the one Church. So there's this balance from the outset in the council of suitable adaptation and maintaining unity. And so, you know, what Dennis is saying here is even in the language, if it were up to each, say, diocese or even each parish to come up with its own way of speaking, that's going to fragment to the detriment of the unity of the church. It's going to fragment it into all of these different parts. On the other hand, if you said every church everywhere, let's say, is going to do Latin, there's going to be no English, no Spanish, no, you know, key Swahili, anything like that. Well, that doesn't respect the adaptability of the right to individual people. So the, there's this balance in here. And so I think when when the translation was coming about, and Dennis, you mentioned this before about, you know, People in America don't speak the same way as people in England speak or Australia or Pakistan or, but yeah, I mean, you can press it further. People in Wisconsin don't speak like people in Illinois who speak like people in Alabama who speak, speak, uh, you speak English on Long Island and things like that. Yeah, we do, baby. So, I mean, if, if it were English, but it is English. If it were that type of local, um, uh, if it were divided up that locally, it would really wound the integrity of the Roman right, which is one of the fir- one of the things that the council wanted to maintain. Now, we can probably all agree. Good translations full of nuance, meaning, poetic rhythm and all that. Most people want that sort of stuff. And not much changed, really, from the Latin typical edition to the English typical edition, especially in the ordinary, the mass. You know, like the creed wasn't rewritten in Latin or Curie is still the same Curie in Greek and, and so on. And yet, in some places, the, uh, the English sounds quite a bit different. So I know you and I, Chris, were very careful to say and not say, well, the old translation stinks, so we have to hurry up and fix it, right? That's, that was not the way it was presented. Although, Liturgy Mathenticum itself, paragraph 6, says, um, 
It has been noted that the translations of liturgical texts in various localities stand in need of improvement through correction or a new draft. Omissions or errors which affect certain vernacular translations have impeded the progress of the enculturation that should have taken place. In other words, this authentic renewal that's supposed to happen didn't happen because sometimes the translations weren't as perfect as they ought to be. That's about as critical, you know, as these things get, I think, about why this needs to happen. But it's in that line of the maturing of the understanding of the Second Vatican Council 50 years later, uh, 45 years later at that time, I guess. Now we have a better way to see what's going on. Yeah, well, you, uh, we did a, a podcast on Vicesimus uh, um, Quintus Annos. Remember that? Mm-hmm. By John Paul II. And it's in that document. So that's 25 uh, years after the council. He says, you know, the time has come to correct some things that have uh, have not been uh, uniformly successful. You know, translations, for example, that are incomplete or or not as complete as they should be. And so, I mean, the this was this was the mind uh, of the church the mind of the pope 25 years after the council that that we were going to revisit these these translations to make them better and longer lasting exactly so you know we will probably finish off with this first section just because there's a lot to say about it but the the introductory material is very clear that um they're going to give quite specific rules like this is how translation is done do this don't do that um but that the idea is that these vernacular language would vernacular languages would be the source of an authentic voice of the church of God. That's in paragraph seven. And that's really an interesting thing. God has revealed words to us. We want to make sure when we say, it's like, we don't want the telephone game to be happening. Right? Hey, guess what God told me? Oh, I kind of forgot. Let me make up some stuff according to my favorite political thing. No, no, no. What did God actually say? So the liturgical renewal in some ways depended on this. And the true notion of God's revelation to us and our response to him uh, depends on this. So that's kind of the positive spin on this. 50 years out, 40 years out, how can we make the reform of Vatican II more penetrating and more influential in the life of Christians and then therefore the life of the world? How final are these changes? I mean, are, are are we looking eventually there'll be more changes? Well, probably. That's the problem with vernacular languages is they change. I mean, the book we have now will probably be around another couple of decades, I imagine. Um, but 50 years from now, who knows what words we've picked, how the, how it's going to change from one year to the next. Uh, I don't know about you, Chris, but when I was in school, if someone called you a nerd, that was a really mean thing. Like a nerd was a bad thing to be. Now, millennials, post-millennials are all like, oh yeah, I'm a liturgy nerd. I'm like, wait, you know, and my mom gets all mad when my nieces and nephews call each other. They call themselves that. She's like, you're not a nerd. And like, But they think it's great. It means I'm like really dedicated to this and interested in this topic. And so maybe 50 years from now, who knows, though, some of these words that make sense to us now will be different. Yeah. Hey, after this introductory stuff, why don't we in our next one, uh, come look at some of those principles that they offer for translation then? Yeah, that'd be the next next step. Okay. All right. How about we answer a liturgy question first? Yes. And only if it's properly translated from the Latin original. From the original English to yes. the uh, <laughs> vernacular English? <laughs> me, I, was, I was watching on YouTube an old uh, Tonight Show thing with Jay Leno, and he has these uh, headlines that are funny. And you have the founder of Walmart is talking to Prince Charles in the picture, and there's a woman between them. And it says, the unidentified woman 
is a translator. <laughs> it's like translating Arkansas English into British English. It was kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. Also needed, probably. Yeah. Well, go All right. Away. Let's answer a question. I am going to take that sound bite and use it every time we go into a question. Golly! <laughs> my, my, my Gomer Pyle moment. There. Golly! All right. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Hey, Dennis, do you have a question for me? My question is, Jesse, do we have a question? We do have a question. I like that bit. Can we keep that going? Sure, every time. Okay, so this question comes from Nicholas. Nicholas says, hey, guys, I love the podcast. This is probably more of a question for Dennis. But he is designing a tabernacle, and he's working on it and fashioning it, and he wanted to know, he's in the design phase now, and he was wondering if you had any recommendations for resources that he can, uh, he said he's read your book, Catholic Architecture, and he wants to know of any other resources that are available to help him in this process. Chris has just leaned back and put his hands behind his head. He's like, oh, good. I don't have to answer any question. I'll just take a little snooze. Until next week. Yeah. (laughs) No, although I I did look up the etymology of a tabernacle. Yes, tell me. It means tent or tavern. (laughs) Yeah, taberna. That's where they come from the same place, a little building. So the tabernacle is a little building uh, where Jesus hangs out. You know, it's funny. You would think that altars, churches, tabernacles, they would be hyper-legislated by the church. This is Mm -hmm. how you build it. This is what it should be. It's not really. In fact, when you go to the general instruction of the Roman Missal, paragraphs 314, 15, 16, it doesn't say too much, right? It says where it should go in the sanctuary or in a separate chapel. Um, It says that it should be noble and prominent and visible and decorated and suitable for prayer. That should be solid and locked and, you know, that couldn't be broken into. Um, and that's kind of it, right? You're just sort of done with the legislation, at least as the general instruction um, uh, has it. So something that I found very helpful over the years is looking at a book that has actually come, came up before the council. It's called Church Building and Furnishings by a fellow named O'Connell. It was actually published by the University of Notre Dame, Liturgical Studies Volume 2. The first one was Louis Boyer's book, Liturgical Piety. The second one, Church Building and Furnishing by Reverend J.B. O'Connell, University of Notre Dame Press. The one I'm looking at is 1955. Yeah, I think I have a copy of that, too. I only say that because, uh, to make the point, it's it's easy to get your hands on, I think, wouldn't you say? Yeah, because it was widely published, and then it only had a very short life because Vatican II happened. (laughs) It was sort of all It's no right of exorcism, let's say that, you know? Well, that's true, yeah. Now, the reason that this preconciliar stuff I find helpful is even though a lot of it's not prescribed by law, 
it has a little a little chapter on the tabernacle, not just three or four sentences, and it talks about the history of it, where it came from, how it's related to the sanctuary, the tent-like sanctuary of the Jews, where God came and met with his people, and he would stay uh, with them. And then it summarizes the law that did exist before Vatican II. It's very specific law that says where it goes. Some very interesting things that says that it's not supposed to be built into a wall or a reredos. Reredos is a kind of tall screen behind um, an altar in older churches. You see a lot in in Gothic churches that it's supposed to be freestanding, that it's supposed to be covered in um, a veil. That was the principal law at the time. So that you didn't really have to ornament the tabernacle that much because it would be covered with a veil. And it can be made of lots of things. This is where the, the new law comes from, right? That it's there's no material prescribed in the law before, but that it should be, you know, it says it should keep out insects and be strong against thieves, you know, things like that. One of the things they mention is that the top of it shouldn't be flat, that it should be domed or pyramidal um, so that nothing could be put on top of it. It's very for, explicitly forbidden by law at the time that you use a tabernacle as a statue base, which a lot of people still have in a lot of churches um, these days. You're not supposed to put crosses on it or flowers or statues or a permanent exposition throne, which I guess was more common uh, back then uh, than today. Now, one of the interesting things that some of these books talk about is um, they used to be required to be lined with cedar and then covered in silk. Very interesting thing, because why would the inside of a tabernacle be lined in cedar? Well, you could say cedar smells good and absorbs moisture, and the silk is a you know a nice material for honoring the Lord. But if you actually think back to the um, tabernacle of Moses, it was made of these cedar panels. The inside of the temple, temple of Solomon had cedar panels that were covered in gold. And so if the tabernacle, as we think of it now, is a memory or a fulfillment of the, the Old Testament where Christ is abiding with his people, so the abiding presence, then to hearken back to that is, is kind of a neat thing. You do see this often. You'll see an angel on each side of the tabernacle sometimes, or even on the doors of the tabernacle itself. You'll see an angel on each side, like the two angels that were on either side of the Ark of the Covenant in the uh, tabernacle. So I guess, you know, the law give you a little bit. Think more substantially. What is a tabernacle? Get back to the ontological question. What is it? It's the place where God abides with his people. What's the prefiguring of that? The temple of Solomon, the tabernacle of Moses. What is it? A microcosm of all creation, dignified, permanent, fine materials, highly worked, important, in an important place, and then making reference to its uh, antecedents in the Old Testament. And then an artist has total freedom to do whatever they want. Sometimes you see little crowns on top of a tabernacle because the altar is the throne of Christ the King. Um, so there's a lot of ways to do it as long as it's consistent with the nature of the liturgy and the nature of the tabernacle itself. How's that, Chris? Uh, I guess my, well, apart from the tavern line, I guess, no. You did a good job on that one, Dennis. Okay, thank you. All right, Nicholas, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet Dennis at DMAC Super Taster, comma, or editorial comment, <laughs> taste more than you do. <laughs> or, as Katie Jeffco says, you can write a message on a piece of silk, roll it into a ball, coat it in wax, have your messenger swallow it, and then deliver it upon arrival to the farm. <laughs> I like that one. That's a good one. I think that's a keeper, I think. 
I think she's so been I, watching uh, that narco show, so maybe maybe that's where that's coming from. Thanks, Katie. Thank, yeah, thank you, Katie. Thank you, and God bless. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College.